Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Theology Thursday. Uh, this is our third week. Uh, my name is Alex Hauser. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Emergence, and I'm joined with Doug Becker, who is our pastor of theology. Hey, Doug. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Good to hear. Yeah, good to see you, brother. Um, so, Doug, this week we have a, kind of another interesting topic that's kind of come along. Uh, you mentioned that you had a couple questions from folks kind of asking about healing uh, and this idea of like spiritual healing, physical healing, and just, you know, what is the biblical narrative for healing that we see uh, in Scripture and how do we kind of walk in that? Um, is that right, Doug? Yeah, and I think that's a, especially appropriate at this time where we're dealing with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, you know, these are important questions to ask because not only are we and other people we know uh, getting sick from this, um, not only is it impacting our nation tremendously, but we as Christians are called one of the, one of the ways in which we're described in the New Testament in First Peter, uh, several times in Revelation, the book of Revelation, is as a kingdom of priests, right? That like part of our, um, part of our, uh, um, role as Christians is to be uh, people who represent God in this world and who and who who mediate. Obviously, not in the sense that Christ mediates, but between God and man. And we are to to bring others to God and to um, be be vessels and conduits for that in this world. So um, part of that is prayer. And in seasons like this, and really in any season of life. Um, there are, uh, there is a need for physical healing and that is certainly something we should be praying about. So sure. just want to look into the best way to think about that. Now I know Doug too, just like, I, I think you, I think you put it really well, uh, as Christians, we're called to be priests. We're called to bring people to the Lord. We're called to be praying. Um, and as simple as that statement might be, there's still hundreds of difference of, of, of differing opinions about healing you know what i mean and and what our role specifically is in that and how we look at healing from scripture and uh doug i think you prepared some kind of examples from scripture already too that we can kind of take a look at mm -hmm. yeah you want to dive into them? uh yeah so i think that it's it's easy to uh, as we start to put these pieces together here or try to um we we um we need to just be careful that uh this this uh does the discussion over this issue, as with many, tends to polarize people and it tends to put people in one of two camps, you know, the, the camp that's all for it and the camp that's all against it. And, um, you know, it may be that one of those positions, one of those extremes is correct. But I think that uh, when we look at the biblical data, we see that the truth lies somewhere in between, as it mm. often does. And um, so... That and that's the thing is that you when you when you are um, working on, you know your doctrine on what you believe about things, you want to take into do your best to take into account all the data. You can't just say, you know, here are the kind of the proof texts of the favorite texts of one position or another. You have to you, what the position that is the, that is preferable is the one that's able to account for all the things that are said, not just some of them. I often find that to be true in many instances with doctrine too, Doug. It feels like the closer you get to a polar extreme on one side or the other, it almost seems the further that you get from the heart of what the Bible's trying to explain, uh, or yeah. sometimes even the heart of Christ, I can see. Yeah, and it can lead you into having to, to defend positions that go, really go beyond what is saying, and sometimes really miss out on blessing because... Mm -hmm. uh, 
because some some really helpful things can be uh, learned from the other side of the debate. Now, one of the things that you mentioned to me, Doug, right before we started recording, uh, which I, I really just kind of hung on to, uh, you said that not it's not always God's will to heal the sick, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's crazy because like that's like one of the most important things I think we can understand. And uh, you have some examples here, Doug, uh, in our show notes, just talking about like you call it the godly sick, right? Yeah. So 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 part of the part of the um, the the scriptural data that has to be brought to bear on this is the fact that in the New Testament times. Uh, and I, I say New Testament times because obviously it's all throughout Scripture. Healings do happen throughout Scripture. Um, in the New Testament times, we know that gifts of healing were particularly active. Uh, there's no kind of orthodox Christian position that would deny that. Um, and even then, when we know that there were gifts of healing active in the church for sure, um, and I, I would argue that we know that to be the case today as well. But even then, we know that there are examples in the New Testament of people who were sick who were not healed, even though there are uh, many that, that were. Um, and these are not people who, can, who lack faith or lack godliness. So, uh, in fact, the, the examples that I'll cite, at least, are all from either Paul's life or his inner circle. So in 1 Timothy 5.23, this is kind of a a bit of a a famous passage. Um, Paul takes an odd break in the letter to give some personal advice to Timothy. And he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's interesting Interesting. here that now how useful wine actually is for the stomach and ailments. I'll leave that to the audience to uh, determine. Uh, well, Doug, let me let me interject for a second. Yeah. One of the th- things that I think I've come to understand is that wine, um, uh, as similar as it may have been to today's wine, uh, back then was a little different, correct? It, in the My sense understanding that, of it is that most of the things that are spoken of as wine in the New Testament are, are, are is significantly watered down by our standards. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought as well. Yeah. Sorry, Doug, go ahead. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I mean... Uh, the the wine thing is might be a topic for another discussion. Uh, I do have some thoughts on on alcohol use, but at any rate, Paul recommends that to Timothy. He doesn't recommend go see someone who's got got a gift of healing or something, or you need to pray and and uh, and and believe. Um, obviously, mm. that's good. That's good advice, but that's not the only advice that he's giving. Mm. Uh, so there's a balance here too of using what's uh, what's common practice or common wisdom at the time, you know, to, to care for yourself, to care for your own health, to care, to care for an ailment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, there's also examples of Paul commending physical, uh, training and keeping your body well and things like that. Um, every, uh, every muscle ducks life first right there. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Every, every, uh, men's ministry. Uh, yeah. yeah. Talks about, um, also, Paul himself, his famous thorn in the flesh, which he talks about in Second uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. Um, he, um, in fact, he says he prays for that. He had prayed uh, specifically three times for this to be taken from him, uh, but the Lord said no. And this is an especially interesting passage because here you have this thing that he calls a messenger from Satan, right? But it's being used to 
humble him. It's being used to make him a more godly person and a more uh, spiritually minded person and more reliant on the Lord. The Lord's strength is made perfect in his weakness. So you have this, this thing that he doesn't doubt is, 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 is uh, from evil in some sense, mm-hmm. but being used by God in his life for immense good, even though he'd rather not have that there. So this is another example of when uh, God did not heal him. And then the final example that I would mention would be 2 Timothy 4.20, where in a passing reference, he says, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Again, example of somebody in Paul's inner circle uh, that is not physically healed from an ailment. So So one of the... Yeah. Uh, so one of the big kind of conclusions that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing here, right? Because there's a lot of questions when it comes to healing, you know what I mean? And one of those, one of the ideas that are, that's kind of out there is like, well, if you're sick or ailing, then you don't have enough faith or you need more faith or somehow you may have done something wrong or, or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, you know, from these arguments that you're making here from scripture, it's basically saying, you know, to be ill is not necessarily, you know, a lack of faith, but it is a reality of the fallen state of our world. So I will say that it's not necessarily a lack of faith, but even that I think needs to be a little bit nuanced, right? Because um, there is evidence in scripture in the new Testament that, uh, that some sicknesses do result from sin, Right. And when we're told to pray in in James five for the sick, we're told to pray with a prayer of faith. So if those things are not present, that is a problem. And that is something that could contribute to the situation. But assuming that we know more about a uh, a spiritual situation or, or how God heals or works healing than we actually do, I think is where we get ourselves in trouble when we try to make it something that's that mechanical. Mm. Um, now the new testament also talks about gifts of healing as well doug and so you know to add another layer to our conversation here you know the idea of uh you know the gifts of healing so to speak can you can you talk about that a little bit yeah so this is uh this comes into play in uh the uh, first corinthians 12 which uh is the chapter that uh one of uh part of first Corinthians 12 through 14, which is a major place where Paul talks about the notion of spiritual gifts, uh, kind of setting the Corinthian church straight about them, about what they are, what they aren't. And a lot of very helpful stuff in there. Um, but one of the gifts that he names there is, uh, is healing. And, um, uh, so this does seem to be operative in the new Testament church. Um, but, even there, uh, there, is a lo- there are some question marks there. And this is one of the things that we can't know for sure. But one of the strange things about the way that uh, Paul refers to healing in 1 um, in Corinthians um, is that as opposed to the other gifts, um, he, he, he alone calls this, attaches the word gifts to the beginning of um, the word healing. Oh, really? not to the beginning, but before, before, in other words, he says, he doesn't just say healings. Like he says, you know, the working of miracles or utterance of knowledge and prophecy and things like that right here. Um, he says gifts of healing. And uh, he does that in both places that he refers to it here in verse nine and in verse 28, which may um, indicate that you don't have somebody 
who's endowed with this kind of permanent authority to heal. Like I just, whoever I pray for gets well, right? Mm -hmm. That, but rather that, that the Lord uh, through particular individuals um, tends to heal people that they pray for. Mm. But, but again, it's, it's the mechanical view of it that I think is, is, uh, can get us into, can kind of take us beyond what scripture says. Sure. Um, now, Doug, there's, there's always the underlying question, right? And, and tell me if this is too much of a rabbit trail, but there's always a big question when we talk about spiritual gifts in, in the new Testament. And the big question that kind of goes out there is, you know, did the spiritual gifts actually cease? You know what I mean? Do they yeah. still exist today? Yeah. So the, the, the specific way that it's often referred to, so we, I, I don't really even know of any church that would say that all the spiritual gifts have ceased, right? Like even churches who think that, who, who do take the, what's called the cessationist position will stu- still do spiritual gifts tests and right to sure. find out if someone has the gift of teaching or the gift of administration and things like that. Um, kind of these quote unquote safer gifts, these gifts that don't apply miraculous things going on. Um, and uh, even though, you know, some people would take issue with the word miracle being used for them, but I think we get what we mean, right? They, they lie outside the, bond, the bounds of ordinary human experience. Um, mm. And particularly, usually what is referred to when we talk about uh, these kinds of gifts will be the gifts of prophecy, uh, the gifts of... Oh, you have ice cream? That's great. Lacey, <laughs> Lacey has ice cream here. Okay. It's Go to mama. Most important part of theology Thursday That's, right there. The is, fuel yeah. to get through the actual videos of the, uh, the ice cream. Tail on Turkey Hill ice cream right now at ShopRite. Okay. So, um, so usually it's the gifts of tongues, the gifts of prophecy, and the gifts of healing and miracles that are referred to. So the miraculous gifts. Did the miraculous gifts cease? And the verse and, – and so – the idea here is this, that at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, Paul says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for my child, <laughs> girls, I'm recording a podcast here. So, uh, come on, close the door. Okay, I love you. Close the door, sweetheart. I don't know if we'll edit that out or leave it in as a blooper. I think it's kind of funny as a blooper, but why don't we jump back okay. in here, Doug? So uh, you just jumped into First so Corinthians 13, this, right? This is the end of First Corinthians 13. And he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So um, some certain branches of uh, Christianity will latch on to the idea here that Paul specifically speaks of these gifts that seem to be more miraculous, and he says that there will be a time when they will cease, when they will be no more. And, um, and so the, the interpretation would be, well, what Paul is talking about here is the relative maturity of the church 
that we will enter into once the apostolic age is completed. So the New Testament is written and the apostles are done with their teaching. Therefore, there is no more need for these gifts. And um, uh, they're now basing that view uh, on this passage, I think is not the strongest argument. I, I'm not persuaded by it. And the reason being that um, uh, the question is, what, what is Paul saying uh, is going to happen that will cause the ceasing of these gifts? He says, the perfect comes and the partial gets done away with, right? He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And the question is, are those expressions there, do they sound like he's talking about the finishing of the New Testament canon or the end of the apostolic age? And it doesn't sound like that. Um, you actually, um, the language here sounds a lot more like he's talking about Christ's second coming. Okay, so like um, uh, seeing face to face, knowing fully, right? Yeah. The perfect, okay? Um, and so it's, it's, it's almost um, an example of what, what is called eisegesis, which is the reading into a text um, a doctrine that you want to get out of it because reading reading this you you wouldn't like there's no reason in first corinthians to think that that's the kind of language that you use to describe you know the writing of the new testament or something like that um mm. so that's probably weak although i do think a strong case can be made for the idea that miracles are less common today than they were in the first century church and the reason for that has to do more with the overall narrative of Scripture. So in Scripture, we tend to think that there are just miracles all over the place when we're reading the Bible. And in, in one extent, that's true. But if you look at Scripture, if you were to, to chart kind of like a timeline of Scripture and to chart miraculous activity, okay, um, you would find three very prominent clusters of miraculous activity. And they're all at times when it is essential for God's people to know God is speaking and he is here in this and not here. Interesting. So now when, when yeah. you say these, these clusters, Doug, are you, are you talking specifically about the new Testament? No, I'm talking about the entire Bible. So okay, two so, are actually in the new, in the old Testament. So that's what I, that's what I was wondering. So you're actually clumping together very specific, uh, eras should i use that word uh, yeah 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 times yeah 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 so specific yeah. times in scripture where god is clearly showing his presence through miraculous goings and, on and part of the narrative of scripture is that you are to know that god is speaking now and that is the revelate the, the exodus from egypt and the revelation through moses right where people are being taught essentially what god is like what his laws are and you have all these people trying to kind of um question moses's authority and things like that right like you have the example with miriam and aaron and 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 all all the situations like that um tons of signs and miracles being done there okay. the next the next time you enter into that phase um, you, you see that you see this would be around the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, these prophets 
whose ministry especially involves miraculous things happening. And what's going on in there in Israel's history? Well, this is the time when the northern kingdom officially makes the worship of Baal the state religion. Interesting. So, so right, so they the Israelites are worshiping different manifestations of this this deity um, throughout their history. I mean, they first encounter him in uh, Moab with um, Baal of Peor, um, and that's detailed in the Book of Numbers. Um, but but now it, it, the the king Ahab, having married this Phoenician princess Jezebel actually brings her chief deity and makes him the chief deity of the northern kingdom. And so this is another time when it is important for God's people the nor in the northern kingdom, at least, to know, no, you're not to listen to this. You are to listen to this. And then the other time, of course, is through the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. So a good case can be made in kind of like a um, redemptive, hist along redemptive historical lines that um, that we sh we would expect miracles and signs to be more common during that era than in the era in which we live. Although, of course, that's not this is not an airtight argument for one position. Rarely do we get things like that. One could always say, "Well, isn't that important in our age too?" Now you see all the stuff going on in the media, and right, you can always make that kind of argument. So it's not kind of an airtight thing. But I'm just saying, biblically speaking we would have good reason to think that there are certain upticks in miraculous activity at certain points in the Bible than there are at others. Interesting. Yeah. Now, so what role do we kind of play in this, Doug? Because, you know, as Christian, we talked a little bit earlier in the video, just like we are called to pray. We are called to, to minister to the sick, to the ill. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of bigger question that you, that you just answered to a little bit is whether or not I have a gift of healing. You know, when we talk about the spiritual gifts a lot of time, we do this as a church when uh, through emergence, um, discover emergence, we invite people forward and we actually give them a spiritual gifts test. Yeah. And we talk a lot kind of about the spiritual gifts. And, and one of the things that I always teach in, in one of the ones that I'm teaching uh, is that like we all have a measure of these gifts, right? So if I have a gift of mercy, for example, mm -hmm. Um, then it, it doesn't mean that just because I have a gift of mercy or that it's stronger in kind of my personality or whatever else or how God's yeah. gifted me, that doesn't mean that, you know, I shouldn't show the other gifts, like let's say of faith or right. of giving or of, you know, anything else or hospitality, for example, I should still be hospitable. I should still be faithful. You know, I should still give faithfully. And just because somebody else has a gift of this or that doesn't mean I don't or, yes. or so on and so forth. And so when it comes to the gift of healing, you know what I mean? When I look at that, it's just like there's certain, you know, if somebody's hurt or ailing from something, it doesn't mean, oh, I don't have the gift of healing. I can't minister to them. It's like, no, mm -hmm. God still called me to be faithful in that. Yeah. And although, in, although I would say that there are some gifts that by definition are, are restricted to only some people. Like so, which ones, Doug? Can well, you give like us examples? Like the gift of, of, of apostleship. <laughs> sure. For example, right? Or I would say prophecy. Sometimes a lot of the debate with these spiritual gifts uh, centers around what they exactly are. Mm. So, and I think this is especially the case for prophecy and for tongues, which we're not going to talk about here. We sure. don't, we definitely don't have time to do that. Right? I would ask you about the apostleship one too, because I've always heard it as capital A and little a apostle. I, and but, I, which I well, think is fair, but, but yeah, I think that's a fair 
there. So let's table that one, Doug, yeah. because I'd actually, maybe we can do that in another Theology Thursday. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into some of the spiritual gifts, uh, yeah. maybe a little bit. Um, but one of the things, you know, moving back to the, you know, to our conversation here about healing specifically, you know, one of the things that we see specifically in James, right, is, is the prayer of faith, right? Yes. And so you've given us James 5, verses 14 to 15. If I could read that real quick, it says, uh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So that's James 5, verses 14 to 15. Yeah. Known often as the prayer of faith, right? Mm -hmm. um, do you want to speak to this a little bit, Doug? Right. So so those of the cessationist camp, right, who, who, who are a bit... Um, I don't want to say skittish about healing, but I guess I just did. Um, what um, would argue that um, James is actually referring here to spiritual illness because sick can mean weakness. And uh, the, indeed, sometimes this kind of language is used there. And then you have the idea that uh, he will save the one who is spiritually weak. Um, so talking about salvation there. Um, raise him up is the verb for resurrection. Um, and, um, and he caps it off by saying, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely salvific tones in this. Um, it, I tend to be, uh, and I think most commentators that I'm aware of on this are tend to be a little bit skittish about that interpretation, just because um, the usually when when the new testament uses the word sick if it's referring to something other than spiritual sickness it will qualify it so it would be like weak in conscience would be an example of that expression or something like that right um and um and james seems to be very dependent on language from the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke that's you know trust me on that one but he is uh you can see that even in a lot of the themes he brings up um, and, um, and their sick and save is always physical. Uh, save is not a word that the synoptic gospels use for, you know, uh, salvation in Christ. It's, it's interesting. So Doug, if I'm hearing you clearly, you're actually, you're, you're making an argument for this as a, as, um, physical. Yes. Family. Am I hearing you right? I, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think, although, you know, I mean, maybe it's the other way, you know, it's not, a lot of these arguments are not dropped dead. I'm just saying, in probability, it seems to me, as it seems to most, most um, evangelical commentators of which I'm aware, uh, that, the, that this is physical sickness it's talking about here. And, um, and uh, in such a case, it says that the, the elders of the church, those who are spiritually mature and are recognized as this by the church as the leaders um, of the church should come and, uh, and pray over them and anoint them with oil. And uh, the anointing with oil there is, you know, probably not um, like a medicinal uh, thing like you get in the, in the, um, the Good Samaritan, um, but it's it's probably like a kind of like a, a consecration to the Lord kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, now that doesn't mean we note also, for example, that the apostles when they're sent out in Mark six thirteen by Jesus to heal and things like that are um, anointing the sick with oil. Um, 
And um, so this is kind of like a religious practice. It, it seems to be. Yeah, it's got it's got it seems to have religious symbolic significance. OK, um, it's not a mechanical thing. There's a lot of uh, healing that takes place in the New Testament where, as far as we know, oil is not involved. Um, so it's not as if like you have to do it this way. And I think we need to be careful to guard on, uh, to be on guard against kind of ma almost magical use of oil. I know sometimes, you know, that, that we people, we have to guard, be, be on guard against, I think, superstition. Um, but this is one of those things where I think like, even though I don't really understand it, I see this as a clear place where the Bible tells me to do something. And even though I don't quite understand it, I'm going to do it. <clears throat> so sure. me and one of the other pastors from our church um, visited a, a sick woman in the Roxbury campus a few weeks ago, and, and um, we anointed her with oil, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's a thing. And it probably doesn't mean empty your cola vita over someone's head. You know, you, we just take some, put, put it on the forehead. You know, I, we're not pouring it, but, you know, I think, I think that's, um, that's this it's it's not unbiblical to do that mm -hmm. and um talks about the, having faith in this passage and so i'm going to have faith that what the scripture says is 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 important and is and is an important passage um sure so you know let me let me put a qualifying statement out there a little bit too doug because like you know, especially on Theology Thursday, the biggest thing that I always get concerned about is a lot of times we're diving into things. You know, as a church, we talk a lot about open-handed and close-handed issues. And I think for these Theology Th Thursday recordings, we're diving a lot into the second-hand issues, the open-hand issues, yeah. so to speak. And, you know, when we look at something like, like a gift of healing, for example, there are Jesus, uh, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-loving Christians and churches all over who may have differing opinions on this that still love Jesus, that are still carrying the gospel forward. You know what I mean? Yes. And for us, you know, what we're doing in, in these sessions is to sit down and look at scripture and to the nth degree of our ability, largely your ability, Doug, um, from as well as we can understand this, how should we move forward in a way that's faithful, that honors God, um, that is worshipful of him and, yeah. and, and is good for his people as yeah. we seek to carry the gospel forward. And, and I think the nuanced way to, to say that we incorporate this passage um, is, uh, is that we need to be doing this. We need to be praying. Um, that doesn't mean only elders can do it, but especially elders should be doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think the key here is this phrase, the prayer of faith will save them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, um, we might assume that the prayer of faith means I have faith that this person is going to be healed no matter what, because I pray this and the Lord gives me authority, you know, this and that kind of authority. That is the prayer of faith. Um, but I think that that's a bit of a harmful assumption because I, because what, what is a prayer of faith? A prayer of faith is, is, is faith in the Lord, faith in his will and his sovereignty where, where Jesus tells us, you may ask anything in my name and I will do it. And that means more than just slapping in the name, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of it, right? That means a, a, a according to, to, to what I want, according to, to my will, right? right. And a, according to the Father's will and submission to the Father, not your will, but mine be done. And so the prayer of faith is, is a prayer that is charged with the way that God tells us to think about our relationship with him, 
about who is the boss in this situation, about whose will is being worked out here, who works through suffering, who works through sickness, and who works through physical healing. Hmm. And so we do pray, although, you know, not even explicitly connected with a a quote-unquote spiritual gift, we do believe that the Lord heals people. We pray for spiritual healing all the time, but we seek to pray with a prayer of faith, which is a prayer that submits our faith to his and submits our will to his. And that's the kind of faith that James tells us the Lord uses to bring about physical healing. Mm. I think that's awesome. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I flew out to San Diego to see some of my family and my uncle, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I told you this, cut his arm off. He was working on his house. He was doing yes. some construction work. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't tending to tigers. No, no, he wasn't. But I've got quite a lot to say on that point as well. Um, We'll save that for another one as well. But uh, yeah, he ended up cutting his arm off with a chop saw. It was was crazy. And so by the time I landed in San Diego, I was going straight to the hospital and it had just happened and it it, crazy, you know, morbid scene. But his whole arm came off. And basically, I, I get to the hospital and I'm talking to some of these nurses and doctors and they're just saying he'll be lucky, you know, if you like they're they're worried about, you know, stopping bleeding and everything else. And, you know, he asked me if I could pray for him and I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord to restore his arm. You know what I mean? They had his hand, they're trying to get it reconnected and they're not very optimistic about it. And I'm praying as much as I know how, um, that God would heal him, uh, in, in some kind of miraculous way. Do I have any idea that he'll do that for sure? I don't know, but I have faith that God loves my uncle more than I do. And, uh, you know, long story short, it's, it's incredible. And I think the surgeons in, in San Diego hospital were unbelievably gifted in the gifts of healing maybe, but, um, he got his arm back, you know, and, and two years later, he's got full function of his arm. They reconnected his arm to it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And, you know, a lot of times when I think of the gift of healing, I, I think back to that because I wouldn't be somebody that argues, you know, from a personal standpoint that I have a gift of healing. I wouldn't say that, but in the moment where it comes down, even looking at my uncle's arm sitting separate from the rest of his body and thinking there's no way he's going to get his arm back as faithfully as I know how I'm praying to the Lord to ask for that, you know, to make that request known before him oh. and, and in faith, um, trust that God will do what my uncle needs most and what is best. Well, praise the Lord, you know, and, yeah. and, and I think, and, and even citing the doctors there, that's not, that's not not a God thing too, right? I mean, mm. we if we do believe, the prayer of faith is a, pray, is a faith that acknowledges that God sovereignly works through all things. Mm. And so even, even, the, even the, work, the hard work and, and learning of doctors, again, my mind is in the book of Joshua, you know, and I see this thing that the people are doing in, in taking possession of the land, and this is clearly God's work, but they're still having to get out there and they're still having to fight those battles and everything. And mm. um, the two are not mutually exclusive and, and it's not biblical to, to think that they are. Uh, so the prayer of faith is one that also does incorporate mm. the, um, the wonderful work of physicians. And, um, and, so, just, and you know, yeah. on that point real quick before we, we have one last or maybe one or two last points here, Doug, but just on that real quick, God bless, you know, uh, and be with all of those who are in the healthcare industry right now that are working mm-hmm. so diligently and sacrificing so much um, to be right in the midst of this coronavirus. I, I mean, I was just, I was praying for a couple of folks just yesterday uh, that I know that are working in hospitals. And uh, if you guys are listening to this and you're there, we are actively praying for you, all of our, all of our staff, all of our pastors and elders uh, praying for you consistently. Mm, yeah. 
So two last points here. Um, Doug, I want to talk about suffering in, in a second um, because, you know, you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, yeah. you know, healing and suffering kind of often uh, come side by side. Uh, but there's another question here uh, that you offered, Doug, and I, I like this question because I, I honestly, I, I never even thought about it before, but the question of did Jesus purchase our physical healing on the cross? Yeah. And you cite so, Isaiah 53.5, right? Yeah. That's kind so, of the core verse for this. Th- this is... um. I guess the reason why I included this here is because I, I've spoken to more than one pe- person about this. And this this is a passage that is sometimes brought in uh, by those who, you know, are kind of in the, the, you know, the healing and miracles kind of camp as, you know, Jesus obviously died for our sins and so that we can be forgiven. In fact, the beginning of the verse says that he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Um, but the, uh, and, and the core sentence or the core verse there, right. By his wounds, we are healed. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and so that's the thing is by his wounds, we are healed. So this is a question about the interpretation of this particular verse that's sometimes thrown out there, which, um, I understand. I mean, I can definitely see that like the, the, the verb to heal in Hebrew, Rafa is often used of physical healing. And so the, the point here would be that not only did Jesus purchase our forgiveness on the cross, but he also purchased our physical healing. And so it is our right as Christians to claim that every bit as much as it's our right as Christians to claim our spiritual forgiveness, our forgiveness. Um, and I think that, that, and I just wanted to add, thought it would be appropriate to add in this conversation that that is an overuse of this passage. Um, as far as we can tell, um, that is not what Isaiah means. And the reason I say that is because every single time that that verb appears in the book of Isaiah, healing is always used as a metaphor for spiritual um, uh, healing and restoration. So the examples would be um, Isaiah 6:10, where it says, uh, make, this heart, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He's not talking about physical healing there. He's talking about them returning to the Lord. Now that's an interesting verse in and of itself. No time to discuss it here. I'm just citing it as an example. Hmm. The next, next example is in 1922, uh, Isaiah 1922. uh, And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So the Lord listening to their heals for mercy is him healing them. Um, In chapter 30, verse 26, he talks about the rest coming restoration of his, his um, people as well. And it talks about the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Um, and then um, the last verse that I'll cite here uh, is Isaiah 58, verses 18 through 19. You have it a, a, a twice in this passage. Um, and he talks about how Israel, notably the southern kingdom, Judah, went on backsliding. And the Lord says, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him in and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
Mm. So this is talking about national spiritual restoration. It's not talking about healing. And I don't think there's any reason to take that differently in Isaiah 53. I think that's helpful, Doug, you know, just kind of overall, as we read scripture, you know, when it talks about healing and just because there's a word sitting on the page that says healing, it, it begs the question, healing from what, you know, is it, yeah. is that a physical ailment or is that a spiritual sickness um, that we have as a, res- as a result of the, the fallenness of sin? Um, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I, I criticized when we were talking about first Corinthians 13, I criticized the cessationist position for importing ideas that are foreign to the context, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that the perfect is the completion of scripture or something. Well, here, I think that um, the, um, the, the, the non-cessationist, the continuationist who cites this verse in this way may be doing the similar thing, assuming that words mean something or are you being used in a certain way when the evidence from the, the, the actual um, uh, book it's being used in uh, tends the other way. Although I could certainly understand the, the misstep here. Mm. But it for, is everybody, for everybody that's kind of watching along with us, one, one worthwhile just kind of quick word study would be the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Because, yeah. um, exegesis is what we want to do. Eisegesis is what we want. It's the exactly. So uh, jump on that. Jump on that as you're watching the video, maybe afterward. There's a homework assignment for yeah. you. Now, Doug, lastly, uh, with the last couple of minutes that we have here, I'd love to ask you just a little bit about... Um, suffering. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that oftentimes just as we talk about healing, it's also worthwhile to kind of uh, talk about suffering as well. Yes. Um, and I, I don't want to belabor this too much. I know we talked about this on the first Theology Thursday and have revisited it more than once since, which is appropriate in this season, but is actually appropriate in all seasons, which is kind of the point. And that is the idea that um, uh, Sometimes the reason why our discussions about physical healing get skewed is because we're, we're not, um, we're having a hard time um, uh, really understanding how suffering plays into the Christian experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, key, um, and, and I, I just remind now, it's, it's a little bit difficult in the New Testament. Like if you were just to do a search on the word suffering, you have Paul talking a lot about suffering and his sufferings you know, um, for Christ and his sufferings, um, uh, fulfilling up in my body what is lacking in Christ's suffering, which is an interesting phrase. Again, a topic for another discussion. But um, things like that, uh, suffer as a good soldier for for Christ Jesus and things like that. Um, And a lot of that does have to do with the suffering that comes from ministry. So we don't want to obscure that, right? Like suffering that wouldn't be in your life, not just ministry maybe, but suffering that wouldn't be in your life were you not a follower of Jesus, right? So sometimes I'll just have natural suffering in my life. And um, that's not the same thing as like the sufferings of Christ, although I have heard arguments made that it is. Um, Or especially sometimes, I mean, I've known some people to suffer and it's pretty clear that they're suffering because of sinful decisions they've made and they still consider themselves suffering for Christ, which is, I think, an, another step too far. But what I'm talking about is the kind of suffering that's part of just this physical world. That's just part of being part of being part of a world that is still in bondage to corruption and that is still groaning and is still in the pains of childbirth, which is why we started off Theology Thursdays reflecting on Romans 8, where Paul talks about that. Um, that we are still, still a part of that. 
and um, we're, we're not completely delivered physically from that. And so just by remi reminding ourselves of that, um, I think that, that we have to have that running in our head as we think through what it means to pray for healing and what it means to be sick and to not get healed. Um, part, of the, part of our witness uh, as, as priests, going back to that idea, uh, this great Reformation idea of the priesthood of all believers, not just of special men who live in, in, in you know, church parsonages and things, right? Like, the, no, we're all, we're a kingdom of priests. Every single one of us is, is a priest um, in the body of Christ. And part of that is not only being able to pray for people to get healed, but, but modeling and showing people what it is to suffer and to go through times of physical hardship and even to die well in a way that glorifies the Lord and bears witness to the fact that we live in this earthly tent that, as Paul says, is being destroyed and is, and is passing away every day, getting weaker and weaker and weaker, but knowing that we have an eternal building for us in the heavens. You know, it's, it's interesting too. I think a lot of times God uses suffering to, to, to show us, you know, kind of where we are, because when I, you know, just, I think anybody that's been in ministry long enough, when you see somebody that's going through a difficult season or suffering for one reason or another, their faith is almost immediately revealed. You know what I mean? And, and Doug, to use your vernacular that you just said, you know, suffering well, you know, you can look at someone and see, you know, as they're walking through a battle of suffering or a period of suffering and you see, you know, their faith on full display, if they yeah. have their trust in, you know, the great healer in the Lord and, and knowing kind of uh, that he's there and he is um, for us uh, versus somebody that has their hope in something else uh, yeah. other than Christ. And a lot of times in, in times like this, you can, you can look and see that. And I think, you know, with COVID-19 as well, we can just look around and you can very quickly see, um, kind of what this season of, I don't know if, I, I guess you could call it a season of suffering, um, is producing. Yeah, it is. And it's an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus, to people like, how do exactly. you encounter economic hardship, physical hardship, the prospect of physical hardship, social hardship, hardship too. I, I mean, yeah, even just being away from one another has been brutal. Yeah. Definitely. All right, Doug. Um, thank you so much, uh, for diving into this topic. Could I ask you to pray for us, uh, Doug? Absolutely. Would you mind praying for healing? Yeah. Lord, we, we reach out to you and ask that you would transform us through this experience, that we would, in time to come, be able to look back at this pandemic and say, Lord, it was hard, but thank you for what you did in me and in us and in our church and in our world through it. Um, Lord, we reach out to you with the hand of faith, not the hand of sight right now. Mm. And Lord, as your word tells us, we who have been uh, entrusted as, as priests, as your priests, as a kingdom of priests, do pray for physical healing. We ask for those who are afflicted among us and among our loved ones and among those we don't even know that your miraculous hand, your powerful hand would be at work physically in the lives of the sick, protecting people from this virus, making this virus go away, 
healing bodies that are being broken by this, Father. Lord, you have always had that power and you have it now. And we ask that you would show us and show this world your power to heal in every way. In Jesus' name, we pray in the best way we can with the prayer of faith. Amen. Amen. Doug, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody that tuned in this week. Um, we will look forward to seeing you in another week with another Theology Thursday. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be praying for you. Take care. Bye-bye.